0: This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are, in general, to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. This is the ninth podcast in our series on the second half of American history. In the eighth podcast, We began by looking at an application, a real world steel application or application of steel to one of the most iconic landmarks in all of America, that being the Statue of Liberty. Then we moved on looking at the advent of the delivery system throughout the West that would become known as the transcontinental railroad, the railroad that would have the ability to carry people and goods from the Mississippi River Valley all the way west to the Pacific Ocean. Once that was established, the east and the west were connected by two or more solid steel rails from the east coast to the west coast. So we looked at the problems that in establishing that transcontinental railroad, how ultimately it was paid for and why America never balked at the massive price that we paid for our ability to be able to travel out west. In this podcast, our ninth, we're going to be looking at now the fact that or the impact on the people that were already out there, of course, the Native Americans. And I stress that because once again, I even remind my classes of this, that once the transcontinental Transcontinental railroad plan was devised, Again, it's not as though it was going through territory that had a bunch of real estate signs on it saying for sale. No, much of the land, not all, but much of the land was occupied by nations of Native Americans, many of which had been here since the last ice age. So when we're looking at the Native Americans, before we start looking at the friction between the Americans and the natives, just a little background on the Native Americans. Now, this doesn't necessarily apply to every nation of Native Americans, but as a rule of thumb, the Natives were extremely adaptable and respectful of everything. Yes, they warred with one another at times over differences in ideas, nothing different than Westernized nations go to war. But when I'm talking about in the sense of being extremely adaptable and respectful of everything is that Americans just didn't understand why natives would follow a herd of buffalo which was their main commodity for almost everything that they needed on a daily basis why they would follow a herd of buffalo in some cases for hours before they brought one down and after one was killed and then brought down why the natives had this almost like ritual or service over the fallen buffalo before they touched it in order to break it down. Americans just didn't understand what the rationale behind that was, and many were simply too ignorant to ask. But the fact of the matter is, is that underscores why and how that the natives were truly respectful of everything possible. What I mean by that is the reason that they would follow the herd of buffalo was primarily to do everything they could to get a a male buffalo, not a female, because a female might be pregnant. They also wanted not only the males, preferably, but they also looked for a male that was possibly injured, a male that was very slow compared to the rest of the herd, or an older male buffalo. The reason being is because then taking that one down, they saw it would have the least negative impact on the herd itself. To Native American ideology, the idea was that in nature, if there is balance, then all is well. So if the natives can use everything of the buffalo, truly everything, then there's no real loss. It's just a transfer and everything is still balanced. But that was the problem and hence the reason for the ritual that some Native Americans did because it was in some cases a song partly or a ritual of Thanksgiving, but also of mourning for the buffalo because there was one part of the buffalo that the natives could not use. And I let this question hang when I'm teaching my classes this, and I really let them think about it. It's amazing what some of the answers they've given, anywhere from, the, from a hoof to the nose, to the heart, to the blood, everything was, the, all of that was used. To date, so far, only one student actually got the question right. And later on, admitted to me, not that they had to, now there was anything to admit to. I wish I had known sooner that they were partly Native American themselves. And they got the answer right. And that question or that answer, if you want to pause it here, I don't want a, a little spoiler alert, if you do want to pause it. But if you now, if you've come back or are just listening on, the part of the buffalo that they could not use was the voice or the sound that the buffalo made because they couldn't harness it, they couldn't get it. Now, if you roll your eyes and say, oh, come on, that's a trick question. That really doesn't mean anything. That's an extreme. Then I ask you to think of this. Think about the person that you lost in your life up till now that was extremely close to you. Think about the number of times that you've said to yourself, my gosh, if I could only hear their voice on the phone, if I could only see them one more time. To the point that my uncle, when he died, my uncle John, who was a Jesuit at Loyola University, when he died, it was before the days where everybody has phones and recordings of everything. Sure, I have pictures of my uncle, who was as close to me, I think, as any uncle could be. Heck, I used to call him. My four grandparents rolled up in one. But what I do have of him that I was able to get from his room at the Jesuit residence was a recording from his answering machine where he left the, the greeting to invite you to leave a message. It may seem minor. It may seem like a big deal to anybody else and no big deal to anybody else. But to me, occasionally, I like to play that because I like to hear his voice, a voice that obviously nobody else in the world has. The natives thought no less of the buffalo. And again, the buffalo was their main commodity that provided them for the shelter, for the hides that they could use, uh, for uh, clothing, for warmth, the bones to be used as tools and weapons, the meat for obvious reasons. And the natives lived essentially or cohabitated nicely with the buffalo, which were estimated over 30 million head prior to the Columbian Exchange, or all the way through to the end of 1491. With the arrival of the White American comes Stage Center, blazing their way to clear for the Transcontinental Railroad. By 1889, by killing roughly 8,000 buffalo a day, that number would eventually be reduced to 85 in the entire United States. Now, one occasionally is, I'll have a student that'll question, said, wait a minute, how do they actually know that that few number was left? They can figure that out by reverse DNA. They can figure out just how diverse the DNA pool is. And what they saw was this, at one point, a very, very diverse, wide span DNA for the 30 million buffalo constrict down to basically a handful of threads of original DNA chain. And that's how they knew that the number was reduced so significantly. Now, if you are one of my sharp listeners here and you're saying, wait a minute, Chris, you said by 1889, but the transcontinental railroad, according to your last podcast, was completed 20 years before in 1869. And again, good catch. Well, then the obvious question is, why are they still killing Buffalo some 20 years later? stick with me and we'll find out what that very sad reason is however for the white american who is traveling out to make his way put money in his pocket being paid by the transcontinental railroad as well as the money he could make on his own only the hide was harvested and the natives were absolutely surprised, I couldn't think of a better word, be as well as angered and frustrated that the Americans would leave so much of what is useful on a buffalo when all it seemed they were interested in was stripping it and then taking the hide and moving on because that's the only part that we could sell. Nevertheless, the sales could be pretty good because on a good day, a buffalo hunter could literally earn more than the President of the United States. And as I talked about before, for the natives, only certain buffalo were killed, every part of the animal being used. But to these white Americans blazing their way out there, it seemed to be the exact opposite. Now, eventually it did come, it had to come to a political head with the Native Americans that we were getting to a point now where we could no longer push them quote unquote west. And what i mean by that or to explain that if you just bear with me for a moment if you've listened to my podcast from the beginning not only of US history 2 but US history 1 you're already going to know what i'm going to quickly summarize here in a reader's digest condensed version but for my listeners who didn't listen to the US history 1 podcast a quick review or a quick review here From the 1820s to the 1830s, Native Americans were essentially ordered out of the eastern half of the United States to anywhere in the Mississippi River Valley. But then as as America grew, mind you, in 1800, America's population was 5 million. But by 1850, five decades later, our population skyrocketed to 25 million. We were starting to rub elbows a little bit closer than we wanted So we then started to push the Native Americans west of the Mississippi River as well. Each emigration, forced emigration, of getting these natives off of their own land killed thousands en route. Yes, it's true, very few were killed at the hands of the American military. Most died off either of dehydration and or starvation, but that doesn't mean the death is any less important. They were killed or they died because they were in land that they didn't know how to work. They didn't know what plants were nutritious and which plants were poisonous. They didn't understand the weather phenomenon in that area. What's more is they were encrouching on an area that other Native Americans already had for generations. And then of course saw that as a threat. So the railroad used much of the territory and the resources and it then became to a point where again, there was no further west to push the Native Americans. We would now had to right this quote-unquote wrong, and I should say quote-unquote right the wrong, with it, with Native American nations as quickly as possible, seeing that, again, you couldn't push them past the Pacific Ocean coast, right? So that's what was generated. One of many various treaties that we're going to take a look at is the Treaty of Fort Laramie, coupled with the plight of the nation of the Sioux. The Treaty of Fort Laramie was signed several times at the location in Laramie, Fort Laramie, Wyoming. I have visited the site. I've stood in the exact spot where the initial treaty was signed. It is a military barracks. It is used to defend the transcontinental railroad workers and then later on the transcontinental railroad itself as many Native nations took revenge on the railroad and took revenge on the Americans by destroying the railroads any chance that they had. But the Treaty of Fort Laramie truly is such a sad but real case of just how backwards and how much lying was going on between the American government and the Native, and the Native American nations, specifically in this case, the Great Sioux Reservation. I do invite you at this point, if you want to put the podcast on pause or as I'm talking to bring up your search engine and type in the 1851 Treaty of Fort Laramie. You don't even have to read anything. Just go to images and you'll see, hopefully, depending upon the search engine you use, you will see the state of South Dakota where the western half has three different colors. In the one that I'm looking at in particular, it goes on the western half of South Dakota, bordering North Dakota to the north, Montana and um, Wyoming and Nebraska to the south, you'll see that the state has several different stripes of different colors. At one time, every color that you see there in the western half, including an area in the upper northeast of the state, was granted to the Standing Rock and other Sioux nations within the great Sioux umbrella families or nations at one time. In 1868, it was revised. It was revised again in 1877, in 1889, in 1910. Every time it led to a clash between the natives that thought this land was now ours according to the latest Treaty of Fort Laramie, 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, et cetera, you get the idea. I thought that that was the final revision. But every time Americans find that some part of the Black Hills of South Dakota or in other areas of the state have precious minerals or other resources that we want, we suddenly look at the natives as being enemy combatants on American territory and we go to war with them if they don't move independently. For those of you that don't care to hear this and think, okay, but that Chris, you finally said lost in 1910 was the last revision. And that's, let's face it, that's over 110 years ago now. Can we let sleeping dogs lie? No, because the Standing Rock Sioux are being violated once again. Go to your search engine and type in the Dakota Access Pipeline. And once again, you see oil grubbing CEOs backed by the American government, dependent upon uh, what party is in possession of the White House, that is granting access to have an oil line laid right through the Standing Rock Sioux reservation that we once again claimed was theirs and theirs alone. To make matters worse, that pipeline they want to put under a sizable lake that provides the nation of the Sioux with potable water. And the CEOs say nothing to worry about, this pipe won't leak and that way you won't even see it. You won't even know it's there. Yeah. How many times have we cleaned up an oil spill because of a pipeline that leaked? No, the Standing Rock Sioux, they're not buying it. Not anymore. We pulled the rug out too many times for them to have any confidence in American documents. By 1877, listeners, for every one Native American west of the Mississippi, there were now 40 white Americans. The natives were truly outnumbered. By 1890, no Native American anywhere in the continental United States lived as a free person on land of their own choosing. By 1899, the Native American population That was once estimated at 10 million in 1491, according to the research of Charles C. Mann in his book called None Other Than 1491. The natives that had once numbered 10 million were now down to less than 250,000. So, to back up to this treaty, the Dawes Act of 1887 also attempted to try to right this wrong. And it divided real estate to individual Native American tribes. But don't in any way think that this was the Amer- America finally getting a, a sense of consciousness and a benevolent cause. Because the bottom line is that Dawes was re- dividing real estate and parceling out land that whites did not want. So the current Sioux tribal land remained intact until 2021 and ongoing due to the Dakota Access Pipeline. Now, occasionally, especially if I have some cynical or even some pragmatic listeners that might ask, well, wait a minute. If it's been going on this long, why won't the United States cede the pillaged or stripped territory back to the Sioux? After all, Didn't we extract everything that we wanted out of the Black Hills of South Dakota? Yes. Then why not just simply return it? Well, amongst other reasons, one of the first and foremost is because that the first thing that the Native American Sioux nations might do upon getting all of that land back would be to build the world's largest eraser and obliterate another one of America's most iconic Landmarks. You got it. None other than Mount Rushmore. The four faces of American presidents who had notorious anti Native American policies, those faces would be wiped out. And could you blame the Standing Rock Sioux? Because Mount Rushmore just isn't carved out into any specific rock outcropping. There's many that are out there. I've seen it. I've been out to Mount Rushmore. I've been underneath Mount Rushmore. There are plenty of places that they could have carved that, those faces, but they did it on Sioux tribal religious land. It is not land that is to be worked. It is land that to the Standing Rock Sioux has very, very important religious purposes to it. And as a result, those four faces might come off of that mountain far faster than they went up. The four faces starting from the left to the right, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt, and then Abraham Lincoln. Those four faces belong to men that if it connected to the bodies that were the same size, they could wade through the Mississippi River at its deepest point and never get their knees wet. It is a beyond impressive Sculpture. How could it not be? But the fact remains that it was there, yes, to honor white American settlement, but it was also there to demonstrate to the natives, you are not getting this land back. You're not getting it now. You're not getting it anywhere in the near future. Why? Because of the hidden message within Mount Rushmore. Oh, it's not hidden like you got to look between the ears or between the hairdos of Thomas Jefferson and Teddy Roosevelt, for example. It's right there in plain sight looking right at you as you're looking at it. So I recommend you pulling that up in a search engine. And what you'd see, and it may not be obvious to you until pointed out, but while the attention to scale in detail was astronomically correct, just, I mean, truly, it is award-winning work here, no doubt. But there is something a little off about all four of their faces. And the fact of the matter is that they're all a little bloated. In other words, it's almost like they're retaining water. Their faces are kind of uh, fleshy, shall we say, or fat. That was done on purpose. The faces have three inches of extra rock on the surfaces so that eventually With the wind hitting those faces year in and year out, the faces will erode down to the original drawn design, the blueprints. You might ask yourself, well, what's the significance of this then? How is that their thumbs up or the thumbs, thumb in their nose at the Native Americans? Because those four faces are not blasted out of limestone or sandstone. They're made out of solid granite, and when granite is exposed to the wind, granite granite erodes at a rate of about one inch every 10,000 years. So what the government and the sculptors were saying to the natives is we're not going anywhere for a very long time because that sculpture really isn't even going to be finished for a full 30,000 years from now. That was the hidden message, but clearly articulated to Native American nations that were listening. So, while many Americans fictitionally, good, good vocabulary, excuse me, fictionally think that we are taking care of the Native Americans or we have, to a certain extent, they do have some plausible arguments for that. Yes, we did offer the Native Americans compensation for the land that we took from them. We did an evaluation or appraisal of the amount of land that was confiscated from them back in the 1850s. We took the value of that land then, and then we adjusted for inflation, offering them several hundred million dollars in 1980. The Sioux Nation refused the compensation. Fast forward to the Obama administration, and now with compounded interest, the American government offered the Standing Rock Sioux $1.1 billion in compensation for the land. Again, the Sioux refused. I'm not saying this in a way to make the Sioux appear hard-nosed, not at all. But as their reply consistently has been the same, you Americans can equate money with religion. You Americans maybe can be offered enough money and push your religion aside. We don't. You're offering us money for holy territory. And that has no equivalent in money. So they refused once again. Again, I invite you, to give an idea just how much the myth has perpetuated throughout American society from the early 1900s on, go to the search engine of your choice and look up All in the Family, and then type in the words Native American. And you'll see a quick two to three minute excerpt from one episode of All in the Family where the, where the bigot Archie Bunker, the, the arch conservative, against, in his own way, bigoted, far-left-leaning liberal son-in-law Mike Stivick as they argue about how American, America, quote-unquote, actually took care of Native Americans. And I would show this little clip to my classes because I demonstrate to them again that that episode wouldn't have resonated with America if so many people sadly didn't think it was true. The s, the average American when we first got the right to vote as a people with the Constitution, and they'll tell you the year. When the first black American male got the right to vote, the average person can tell you. And when the woman got the right to vote in 1920, and when the right to vote went from 21 down to 18, 1971. But the average person doesn't know that the Native Americans got the right to vote in 1924. It's just generally one of these facts we gloss over because of other larger segments of American society. So this just a second or a third take now from my series on the first half of American history of the fate of Native Americans as America gets settled further and further into our Western states. When we come back, we're now then gonna discuss the lines of work that were drawing Americans from the East into the West to try to make a name for themselves and put a few dollars in their pocket. We're going to look at what it was like to work in the Rocky Mountains, the grasslands, the whole idea of the cowboy, as well as, of course, even looking at the life of what it was like to be a plantation owner in the great out West. And even, which is oftentimes overlooked in American society, but some of the heroes, American heroes, are those that kept America's uh, shores safe, and that is of America's lighthouse keepers, another line of work that has all but disappeared throughout the United States. So thank you again for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions you might have or book recommendations. If you like what we discussed today as well, please leave me a review. Have a great day.